I'm Kate Daniels. As we meet my first guest, I hope we'll think about the conditions for many people in our community and the safety for them and for all with the homelessness crisis that is growing. Consider this with Giving Tuesday and where we might put our charitable dollars as we hear from Sherman Haggerty, author of Hope Disappearing, A Population Left Behind. Sherman served on Volunteers of America's Board of Directors for eight years and then for five more years was involved in a Sacramento program with VOA to serve over a thousand homeless clients with good results. Let's meet Sherman to hear more about the experience. Thank you, Sherman Haggerty, for joining us today. Please share with us your reasons for writing Hope Disappearing. Well, you know, the, the reason I chose to write the book is because we had such good programming here for such a long time. Um, we didn't have enough of it, so the problem was still growing. But um, when it was 2016, when HUD made the decision that they were no longer going to fund homeless services, that they were instead going to take that half a billion dollars a year and put it into more housing units. It was kind of the beginning of the uh, end of robust services, the kind of services needed to move people out of homelessness. So, um, you know, while that probably didn't impact the, new, the number of new people coming in, it certainly did uh, impact the opportunity for people to leave, which was where I was spending most of my time. Um, we had a program that ran for 20 years. We had 4,000 people come through it. Uh, 3,000 of them left homelessness for good with jobs and market rate housing and have gone on to do amazing things in our community, and they just defunded that program um, and replaced it with nothing here. So, um, And I think I know why. I was actually in Washington, D.C. for a National Alliance of Homeless Conference um, when the head of HUD got up and made the, the statement that they were no longer going to fund homeless services, and he followed it with the statement, said, you need to go find that money someplace else, like Medicare and Medicaid. Well, it might have been easy for him to say, but Medicare and Medicaid don't fund the kind of services that generally the homeless need, which is life skills and budgeting and uh, rehabilitation from drugs and alcohol. Um, so... And the people they were talking to really didn't understand how to go out in a couple of years and, re and replace a half of a billion dollars. So uh, that money just disappeared over a period of time, and along with it, a lot of services. And then on top of that, there has been this new philosophy created with alcohol and drugs called harm reduction, which basically says you can't offer housing to someone with a caveat that they can't use alcohol and drugs uh, while they live there if the money is coming from public funding. So the controls on alcohol and drug use for this population, which is an enormous problem, and not just for the existing people, but also for the whole new group of people that are coming with this new, just crazy kind of drugs that we have on the street, the, the methamphetamines that are out there today, the fentanyl that is out there today, is literally driving people crazy or killing them uh, at an alarming rate. And we're really doing nothing to stop that. So it's a, it's a, like a, a soup. You know, we have these ingredients that need to be addressed. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to start to turn this thing around. 
And it almost does feel like it at this point because we just see the numbers of those who are coming onto the streets and the cover of your book shows the tents lined up along the sidewalks and walking down so many streets in Seattle, we see that very same kind of picture. So it's definitely growing. So let us just rewind a moment to to what you were saying about HUD and deciding that they were not going to support this program to support the homelessness problem. They wanted to just build more housing. Now, it just is mind-moggling why they would come to that decision when the program was working and we were making progress. Well, and that's a great question. And I think, you know, I've come to understand a little bit better how different layers of government work. I don't know that the federal government knew a whole lot about Mesa Community Campus or other robust transitional housing programs that were operating for the homeless around the country. But there was a fair amount of pushback when that first came. But their stance was, we're a housing agency. You know, we're not here for services. And I really believe that they thought this was true. They thought they could have a bigger impact with that half a billion dollars by creating more housing than they could by, you know, offering these kind of services. But there really was no place to go and replace that that kind of money. And I don't know that whoever made those decisions, whatever group made that decision, really could have understood, you know, all. it's not just the, and I point this out in the book too, it's not just the their dollars. It was the community support for the kind of work that was being done, the, the whole idea of rehabilitating people and putting them back to work and having these success stories in the community. Um, at Mather, for example, we had literally dozens and dozens of companies, banks and mattress manufacturers and furniture manufacturers and churches who uh, wanted to be a part of that program and were donating millions of dollars in in-kind services and goods and coming out and you know, repainting and uh, providing Thanksgiving meals and toy drives for Christmas. That's, it literally disappeared when the services went away. So there's you know, now nothing here really to rally around to uh, get the community involved. And that was, I don't know that anybody could have really seen that, that cost or was considered when these decisions were made. And, and maybe they really thought these municipalities would figure out how to go about replacing that money, which is really a whole other conversation. But it didn't happen, and this is where we are now. Oh, and where we are just has escalated, it seems, so rapidly. And put on top of that a pandemic where things are floundering because of the nature of of that whole situation. So we end up looking at the Seattle area where there's just kind of this almost flailing effort to try and make things happen. and, And the city is purchasing some hotels to house people. So that is one layer. But, of course, the those accommodations uh, nowhere meet the need. So, and, and I think as you point out, you have pointed out, and then, of course, comes clear in your book, Hope Disappearing, that it's not just a matter of housing. There are just so many other aspects to... Uh, what is going on with an individual, with a uh, with a family that maybe finds themselves uh, on the street? Yes, and and it is individuals and families, and you know the services that were provided in transitional housing. Um, even if 
even if people didn't complete the program and and get into market rate housing, they would prove their lot in life somewhere because um, because of all the other services that were offered. And, and you know, when you put somebody in a hotel room, you're giving them temporary shelter, but you certainly aren't working on their their overall health and diet. You're not working on their alcohol and drug problem. You're not trying to expunge their criminal records or improve their credit rating or teach them basic life skills and household budgeting, all the things that people have to have in their toolkit in order to live independently. None of that is happening. You're just housing them temporarily. And here's the thing that I worry about. Um, You brought up the pandemic. And, of course, we have all this money from the CARES Act and all this other protection for eviction. When those dollars run out and those hotel rooms aren't available, there's the possibility that we're going to get another large increase when, you know, when they stop enforcing, you know, landlords from not being able to evict people who aren't paying rent. And I know for a fact that we have a lot of uh, these housing first programs here in Sacramento where rent has been subsidized for hundreds, maybe thousands of people. If they are not currently paying their rent, they're protected through the current guidelines for COVID because the landlords can't evict. But that can't go on forever. When, when that goes away, you're going to see a lot of people hitting the street again who haven't been paying their rent or haven't been paying their mortgage or maybe their unemployment you know, finally runs out. So there's a big concern that we are masking another wave of homeless people on top of what we already have. So that is a dire forecast for yeah, us. And, and I, yeah. you know, I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, I just have enjoyed living in Sacramento. I've been here for 30 years. It's been a a great town. We kind of watched the deterioration of uh, San Francisco with all these problems and kind of shook our head about what a shame that was. Well, it's coming here and it's coming to Seattle and it's coming to Portland and it's coming to a lot of other cities in the United States. And um, we're, we're just so woefully slow to act on this stuff. It's becoming a crisis. You know, it's probably close to the number one problem in Seattle these days. I dare say that it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, b- because of just what is and uh, just how we see the streets filled with the tents and and people just um, the mental health issues, the people who are acting out uh, in different ways. And, and then some of the, the violence just happens for so many numerous reasons, I think, Uh you know, part of it related to to the mental illness, but part of it, I, I'm sure, is just the uh, uncertainty and and the interactions that go on on the street just has to cause this boiling and broiling that goes on within an individual. And and how do they how do they cope? There there seems to be nowhere to turn for help. And what do you see, or what do you think we can do? Sherman, about making some kind of stride in this area? So I think the the low-hanging fruit, and and I'll just keep on saying this, is um, we need to have a whole different attitude about the use of alcohol and drugs, and we're really going to have to crack down on it. You know, my personal experience with methamphetamines, we had a lot of people who came to our program who had at some point, and maybe while they were there, actively used methamphetamine. And, And methamphetamines can actually cause psychosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, and um, it's remarkable with three months of um, stabilization from using those kind of drugs, just how much of that obvious mental health virtually disappears. So 
Um, and if you're homeless, even if you weren't a drug user before you went on the street, if you're on the street for any amount of time, people are going to start self-medicating because it's a miserable life. But we need to figure out how to slow that down because on top of the mental health issue and the crime that goes along with having to be on the street and fend for yourself, we are now dealing with a ever-growing drug-related crime industry. You know, new cartels coming in, uh, new local gangs organizing around the tremendous amount of money that's available through, you know, pushing these drugs. And it's not like the, the homeless don't have access to money because they get food stamps and uh, they get some other kind of uh, local benefits, but most of that ends up going back into drug use. We need to figure out how to deal with that problem, you know, both from um, a treatment aspect, but also from ways to slow down the flow uh, into our communities, because it is just ravaging. And uh, seriously, the strength of the drugs over the last 20 years is just, just really ramped up. So what's on the street right now is extremely dangerous, very capable of causing severe mental health with very little use. And the fentanyl now is... Uh, literally a killer. And it seems, I think this came out in a story from Texas where there was that horrific and uh, tragic concert, I guess it was, where eight people died. But yeah. there were, right? And they talked about that maybe someone was poking needles into other individuals randomly. So there's that kind of a, a threat that, that exists. Yeah, the drug issue is huge here in California, and I really believe probably in any of the border states like Texas and Arizona and Florida, there's a you know still a lot of drugs flowing in, and the way that I understand this drug program works now is these exotic chemicals are being shipped from China into Mexico, and Mexico is where they are manufacturing this stuff and where these huge drug cartels are operating. And they have a pretty slick network to just, you know, get that into our country and push it. But if they're pushing it on the homeless population now, you know they're going to continue to push it in other areas of our population that's going to have a devastating effect as well. So to me, it's just a big deal. And we have kind of a casual, seemingly casual attitude about uh, trying to seriously work on that. I mean, the whole harm reduction program for for homeless doesn't make any sense to me because I, I feel like it's causing way more harm than good. So we know that we we are living in in such a crisis. I, yeah. I think every day is a, a crisis, and it, it almost feels like we're at a tipping point even with it. But we need to look at what can we do, not just putting Band-Aids on it, but, you know— kind of the focus of the offer of our conversation was, you know, we're going to talk about Giving Tuesday. So so that's part of it. And that's that's wonderful that we have that opportunity. We want to, I think, preface that by saying it's not a one-time kind of thing as we really focus toward that giving. We have to see it in a much bigger picture too, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I think until... Um a much larger segment of our community decides to take ownership for this problem, it's going to be difficult for the people who we are currently charging with solving the problem to come up with um, significant solutions. And, and I totally understand both sides, but, you know, you have, like, to begin with, we are 
here in Sacramento, and I'm sure they're in Seattle, we're, we're pretty short of shelter space to get people off the street. And that's really where you need to start with cleaning up this problem is having enough availability of some kind of um, shelter to get people off the street and to start to work on on some of these issues. But every time a new area is identified as a place to build shelter, there's a lot of pushback from the local citizens about not in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the points I didn't make in the book, but I believe is true, is they're going to end up in those neighborhoods if um, we don't they're going to end up in everybody's neighborhood. I mean, they're in places around here in Sacramento, and I'm sure in Seattle, where they certainly weren't 10 years ago. And we just have to take our um, responsibility for making sure there's there's a, a place to get them off the street. Otherwise, they're going to be in your streets. So, and I and I know that's really tough. That's um, uh, you know the the typical. And I'm, I won't name the individual or the place, but I flew to the national. The, the conference, the national conference to end homelessness, several years ago, and I was sitting on the plane with the mayor of one of our local suburbs here, and he he was saying, um, and I told him what I did, so he wanted to talk about homelessness. So he was saying, well, we have people in our on our riverbanks and in our, and in our um, shopping malls and in our grocery stores, panhandling and sleeping and leaving crap. We never had that before in this town, and uh, when I asked him what his plans were and he said well he said we're gonna try to push them back into sacramento well that's not that's not a plan mm-hmm. but that's everybody's plan you know and and uh, um i recently talked to someone in austin and they just passed a state ban on public camping um and that was really to to drive the homeless off the streets in the downtown areas but there's not sufficient places for those people to go so and again, I, I completely understand the motivation behind that because the retailers end up with um, people sleeping in their doorways and leaving needles and bothering customers and it's killing their businesses. But to indiscriminately force people into new locations, because um, at least in the downtown areas, most of them have some access to services of some kind and some kind of public sanitation. Uh, but if you drive them out into the woods and out to the suburbs, you just you know, scattering the problem and making it much more difficult to um, to control. So, so, so we need we need the community to accept the fact that we're going to all have to be involved somehow in in stopping that problem, and we're going to have to create these shelter locations. And hopefully, if we do it well, they don't have to be there forever. But we need a place to um, start gathering people, start working on the um, whatever kind of rehabilitation we can do. And, and that's the other thing. I will tell you there's way more people on the street that are capable of being totally rehabilitated than people realize. There's also a fair amount of people that need permanent supportive housing, but from what I've seen, we end up putting a whole lot of people in permanent supportive housing who didn't need it, and, and that keeps us from having adequate supply for the people that do need it because we haven't really you know, taken the time or, or created the atmosphere where we could do the, the right kind of evaluation and uh, and move move people into services and, and there's a you know I could go on and on about this and and uh, I don't want to make it too confusing but um, in Sacramento we had an organic referral process six years ago that um, 
the shelters that were originally collecting our homeless population uh, could refer people out directly to services that they needed, like alcohol and drug rehabilitation or mental health. Um, same thing with the parole and probation system. They could directly refer people who were coming out of jail to these services that they needed as part of their probation. And um, then those places would, you know, they would do their work and they would refer them to another level of services. And when they were ready, they would come to our campus at Mather or other transitional housing programs to have an opportunity to, you know, finish the work and maybe eventually get, get out of homelessness. But with the HUD mandate, um, they um, created this program called Coordinated Entry. I don't know if you have that in Seattle, but um, basically what Coordinated Entry did here was um, in one day, literally, it eliminated that referral system, said you can't refer people anymore. The only way someone could be referred is through our Coordinated Entry system. And the way that works is um, we have an agency here in Sacramento who hired a bunch of navigators, is the word, which was basically a little above minimum wage people to go out into the community and to locate as many homeless people as they could and give them a vulnerability test. It's a self-scoring test. And HUD said you have to treat the most vulnerable people first if you're going to use our money. And, um, you know, and at the time we were partially HUD funded, so we were forced to use coordinated entry. Well, that eliminated a uh, wait list of 250 people who were hoping to get in. It was replaced by people who no knew nothing about the program and who weren't really ready for it. And it devastated these other uh, service agencies who had gotten comfortable over a 20 year period with referring people. Uh, into into our program, and of course, from time to time, we would be able to refer them back if they were failing. But um, that system just literally disappeared. And um, to me, that's just another hidden tragedy that happened in the homeless service system of care here, and probably everywhere else. So when we know that there, I think it is somewhat similar in Seattle. Uh, maybe not exactly, but that kind of situation exists. So as we look at this and we want to do something, uh, because I know we could talk about this for for hours, yes, in, 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 in just a few minutes, can you kind of direct us, Sherman, as to what we can focus on and as, you know, throughout the year, but certainly with Giving Tuesday coming up? Well, yes. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the most important next step um, from from what with two things, uh, I think there needs to be a a, a um, level of public concern raised about uh, uh, alcohol and drug issues because they are exponentially increasing our population. But the other thing is, as a place to start, we need to have more temporary shelters. And actually, the one good thing that they're doing here in Sacramento is they've created these navigation centers that are specifically designed to be placed close proximity to some of these homeless encampments and then to work to get the people out of the homeless encampment into the navigation center, get them stabilized, and then eventually figure out how to move them into some other kind of housing. So we've created a couple of them um, here that are seriously they're located just literally across the street from some of these 
downtown encampments, and they seem to be having a fair amount of success. And what, what they, the way they facilitate it is they put up these, um, it's called a sprung tent, uh, and these, they're really pretty amazing um, structures. This is basically a giant tent that can, um, it doesn't look bad, um, and in the, in the right area with the right controls, it's certainly a giant improvement over the homeless encampments. Uh, can serve up to 150, 200, 250 people. We actually have one in Reno that serves 600 people. I think that's a little, a little large, um, but nevertheless, it's an opportunity to get people off the street um, out of these uh, encampments. So it's serving, you know, two purposes. One, it's it's serving the population. And the other thing is it's helping out, um, you know, these areas in our downtown that are just kind of overrun with this problem. So that's a, and it's, it's compared to, you know, building a giant facility to um, provide all the services that we feel that they need. This is, a, I think, a good start. Um, but we're going to need to put more money into um, some of these rehabilitative services, mental health, obviously, alcohol and drug recovery. Um, once you get them off the street, you know, we need to figure out what we can do to provide more humane solutions for this population to move forward. And, and again, my history tells me there's many, many people on the street who, with the right opportunity, don't have to spend the rest of their life there. And and that is so tragic to think of there being kind of just this thread line of of difference that you know just a little help in the right way would would bring this person into living the life that uh, they were meant to be living here. But one by one, if the, if we could make this happen, then th- I think that's the way we begin to solve. Uh, this crisis that we have. Oh, I think so, too. And uh, if you can do it in a community setting, you can do it a little quicker than one by one because those kinds of positive momentum seem to help carry themselves. And again, I, I, you know, I keep on talking about Mesa Community. It was really a remarkable program, and it was actually established by Sacramento County back when we had some real forward-thinking people there. It won two presidential awards. Like I said, it you know, graduated thousands of people out of homelessness. And just because the HUD money went away, it was hard for me to understand why there wasn't a much greater emphasis on trying to save that. When you really dig into the nitty-gritty of some of these issues, so we lost $4 million of HUD money to run that program. The Sacramento County budget is $4.2 billion a year. You know, I understand everybody... <laughs> wants to save their nickels and dimes when it comes to different parts of the county budget, but $4 million out of $4.2 billion is less than one-tenth of one percent. And I know for a fact it costs our county around $125,000 per year to care for everybody that's on the street, and that's um, police, fire, emergency room services, all the social service agencies that are trying to feed them and do the public sanitation. It cost us about $30,000 to put one person through our program and get them off the street. So the financing part, the money part, is much better spent on the rehabilitation side than it is trying to maintain a large population on the street. So someday, uh, hopefully, that'll sink in, and some of the money that is spent on these diverting services can be reallocated to the rehabilitation side. 
Exactly. And I think speaking about the program that you had that was working so well is great because there's a model to aim to replicate because it was having such great success. So I think it bears discussing and we can learn more about it, correct? In your book, it's just come out this month, Hope Disappearing, A Population Left Behind. Yes, yes. Well, everything that we can do, the more we can really raise the awareness and rally the troops, so to speak, to make a difference here and make some progress is what we need to do, correct? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, every little bit helps. And uh, again, the more community involvement you can get in addressing the issue, I think the greater opportunity you have to start having. I mean, it's going to take us a long time anyway, since we've gone so far down this road, but we need to get started now or we're never going to be able to fix it. Yes, exactly. We don't have any quick fixes. This is getting into it for the, the long term. Yes. Right. Well, Sherman Haggerty, you are certainly a man with big heart and really important ideas and vision. I do thank you for putting it all this into print in your book, Hope Disappearing, and thank you so greatly for taking the time to speak with us this all morning. All right. I appreciate you um, having this involvement very much, and thank you.